DW, World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm Kathleen Schuster. Coming up, members of Russia's LGBTQ community are fleeing to the Central Asian country of Kyrgyzstan. I realized that they could come for me because I served in a military training program in university. But I was worried because the men with higher ranks were brought up in a very homophobic culture. And some refugee children suffer from traumatic nightmares. We'll hear from one researcher who's helping these kids get a better night's sleep. You are taking the most scary thing in your life and you can sort of deal with it. And what we see then is that nightmare actually disappears. You're listening to World in Progress. I'm your host, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're going to hear from people searching for a safe place to live. Some are refugees, some are migrants, and some are still in their home countries looking for a way out. We begin with this story about members of Russia's LGBTQ community who fled amid the war in Ukraine, fearing not only the draft, but also a crackdown on their community. And one place they're heading to is the Central Asian country of Kyrgyzstan. Reporter Levi Bridges has more. On a recent evening in Bishkek, the capital of Kyrgyzstan, I meet up with a Russian man from Siberia who fled to Central Asia last year to avoid fighting in Ukraine. He didn't want to give his name because admitting you avoided conscription is a criminal offense in Russia. I realized that they could come for me because I served in a military training program in university. Technically, I held the rank of an officer. So I was one of the first people they would call. But another, even bigger reason he was worried is because he's gay. He says there's no law in Russia to protect soldiers from bullying or hazing which is something he's experienced firsthand. When he was in the army, another soldier threatened to tell the officers about his sexual orientation. He was hinting that if they knew I'm gay, then they would kick me out of the army. I didn't know what to do. Because I had come out several years before, and I didn't want to live in secret any longer. But I was worried because the men with higher ranks were brought up in a very homophobic culture. He never got kicked out of the army, but he says soldiers started giving him a hard time and making him do extra work. Many other LGBTQ Russians also immigrated to countries like Kyrgyzstan last fall to avoid serving in the army. Inside a library in downtown Bishkek, located in a tall building made of white stone with big windows shaped like keyholes, I meet up with another young Russian man. Sitting near students flipping through old newspapers, he told me he fled because it felt like he was under constant threat in Russia. After the draft was announced, I couldn't focus on my work or do anything. All I could do was read the news on my phone and doom scroll. I didn't have any military experience, so my risk of going to war was low. But the only thing that matters to them is sending you to the front and throwing you in the meat grinder. 
Many Russians who moved to Central Asia that I've spoken to feel like their well-being suffered under Putin even before the war started. This young man feels especially threatened because he's bisexual. Russian President Vladimir Putin's government has repeatedly restricted the rights of LGBTQ people. Last December, Russia even passed a new law that makes any reference to LGBT issues in media, like movies or books, a criminal offense. An anti-LGBTQ sentiment is strong among some conservative Russians who support Putin. This man I meet in the library says he thinks they passed this law to create a distraction from how poorly Russia has performed in the war, and LGBTQ people are paying the price. Now, resource centers for LGBTQ people in Russia are closing because of the new law. So there are fewer places for people to go for help if they encounter threats or violence. You can't even be sure it's safe to go to the police. At a table next to us, students are studying French with a teacher. This man also comes here each day to take French classes. He hopes to eventually move to France, or another more tolerant country where same-sex marriage is legal. Central Asia isn't an obvious choice for LGBTQ people to relocate. Recently, Kyrgyzstan's government took away transgender people's right to change their pronouns on official documents. In nearby countries, like Uzbekistan, being gay is a crime. But there's still an active LGBTQ community here. On a recent Saturday night, locals pack into a club frequented by Bishkek's queer community. There's a DJ on the stage, friends and couples dance under soft red lighting. Queer Russians have started new lives here, but many don't plan on staying forever. Paulina, a woman who works with the Russian LGBTQ network, a human rights organization, says she and many others from the community want to go home when the political climate changes. I hope to return home to Russia as soon as possible because I want to live in my country, the country that I love. That doesn't mean I support Russia's government. It's just that it's my country, my home. For some LGBTQ Russians, like the man I met in Bishkek's library, moving abroad has resulted in some positive changes. He recently decided to come out to his friends and family. It was a long road to get here, and part of why I did this now is that I knew I wouldn't receive any negative consequences. In Russia, I could get fined for coming out and talking about my sexuality, but here it wasn't scary. Life is getting more uncomfortable for LGBTQ people inside Russia right now. But for this man, the restrictions actually helped him to become more open about who he is and share proudly with the world. Well, the war in Ukraine is just one of many crises across the world that's forced people to flee their homes. As of last year, the world's forcibly displaced population had reached nearly 108.5 million people. That's according to numbers from the UN Refugee Agency. And while governments and aid workers grapple with how to help these people, my next guest says one big issue is helping refugee children sleep better. 
Professor Jon Schulz is part of a group of researchers working with the Norwegian Refugee Council to treat these kids for nightmares. Because just like adults who are refugees, these children often dream about the catastrophes they've lived through. But these aren't just bad dreams. They're called traumatic nightmares. In other words, dreaming of a near-death experience and waking up with the exact same feeling. The good news is there's a way to treat this. I spoke with Professor Jon Schulz earlier this week. Jon Schulz, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. How did you first begin trying to find a way to help refugee children who were experiencing nightmares? Yeah, well, for my part, it started in northern Uganda back in 2006. That's when the ceasefire got in place after 20 years of civil war in Uganda. And that situation was so brutal for children due to the fact that thousands were recruited as child soldiers. And at this time, in 2006, Norwegian Refugee Council had already set up a school center and everything was in place. There were good teachers, school books, a good building, and even warm food. But the challenge was that the children did not learn. So... I was invited down to look into this case and what we saw rather early when we talked with the children and their parents was that they had nightmares. So they simply didn't sleep at night. So when they came to school, they were exhausted and no energy for learning. Well, you've worked with refugees for many years now and taking one step back, what do people who've experienced trauma in this sort of context need to regain a sense of safety? and a sense of mental well-being. You're touching something very important when you talk about sense of safety, because that is seen as one of the very important factors for you to recover. And the research have identified five major principles or categories. The first one is sense of safety, that you need to tell yourself that, well, what happened yesterday Uh, happened yesterday, right now I'm in a setting where it is safe. And you have to really build that sense. The second category is calming. You need your body to calm down. The third one is reconnecting with people. Because when you have experienced traumatic stress, you tend to isolate. And it's when you reconnect with people that you can receive social support, which is so important. The fourth category is self-efficacy. And that's the belief that you can influence your own situation. What you do matters. You can influence your own situation. And the last one, but not the least, is hope. And sort of having all these five categories need to be present in your life in order to, what to say, uh, boost the, the natural recovery. Going back to the example of children, can you give us an example of what this looks like when you're trying to help a child who's experiencing nightmares that have been induced by a catastrophe that they've experienced or other trauma? Yeah. First of all, I, I have to say that, you know, for children... They are vulnerable. They are vulnerable in situations like when you have to flee. They are vulnerable because they lack cognitive functioning to understand what's going on. 
the other part is that they lack life experience to to deal with it so you know in order for a child to make these five categories being active in their life they need support they need support from grown-ups so let's say a, a child is having nightmares what would be the first thing that you would do well First of all, we need to find out that the child has nightmares. And the typical, when a child has nightmares, is that she or he is not talking about it. And what we have done together with the Norwegian Refugee Council, we set up a program that is highly effective. It's four group sessions and four individual sessions. And then the children come together and talk about the nightmares. And in the beginning, they just share stories with each other telling that you know i also have nightmares and it's so you know strong seeing these conversations because they never talked with anyone before about the nightmares and they get so relieved when they hear that other children also have nightmares they're not alone and they're not going crazy and then the second part that we are really stressing is that, you know, we can help you with this. It's possible to get rid of it. And then the last part, and this we do individually with the children, that they draw their nightmares and then we talk with them and ask them, is there anything here that you think we could change in order for this nightmare to be less dramatic, you know? And in the beginning, they say, oh, no, 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 this is my nightmare. This is, I had it for a long time, can't be changed. And it doesn't take long before we get into a position where we can negotiate a little and we start drawing a little different here and different there. Maybe if there's blood, maybe we can make another color of it to make it less frightening. The psychology behind this is that you are taking the most scary thing in your life and for the first time you're talking with someone in a safe surroundings and then the, the anxiety is taken out and you can sort of deal with it. And what we see then is that nightmare actually disappears. Hmm. When you were talking about the five kind of pillars of good mental health in terms of uh, restoring a sense of safety and what a lot of people who've experienced trauma, like refugees, will need. Um, I couldn't help but think, well, that's the complete opposite of what their lives are. Whether they're still in their home country and they're internally displaced or they've had to flee, there's just an innate sense of lack of control over their situations. Yeah. No, and, and, and that is the, uh, the challenge. Of course, it's easier to work with children that are in another country when they have left where the ongoing attacks. But also, you can actually do a lot with children, even though the terrible things are ongoing. And you use the word lack of control. And that's such a central issue in this, because as you said, they are... The, the complete loss of control. And that is, if you should say it easy, the um, trauma equals lack of control. So even though you are in a terrible situation, there can be something in your life that you can control. 
right? So it's about finding out how to build up a sense of control. And, and that comes back to self-efficacy, right? That you, you can actually do something and you can, uh, even though it was terrible yesterday, right now, it's not that frightening. So I have to calm down here and now. What happens to children who are left untreated when they're experiencing these nightmares? What's the long-term view of that in terms of how they'll be dealing with these emotions going forward or even into their uh, adult lives? Yeah, that, and that is a depressing answer to that uh, because it really affects them. And the younger the child is, the, the more it can actually affect their development, right? Because when you take away hours of sleep, you will get less resources in your life to, to function, right? So you can actually change quite a lot in a very negative way. And we also see that nightmares tend to stick. So when you first got a traumatic nightmares, it, it's, it's the nightmare in itself is resilient, so it, it stays there. But the good news is, of course, that when you first identify the nightmare and provide treatment for it, it can actually work very effectively. And we do see in our research, and this is promising, that almost 70%, close to 70%, get totally rid of the nightmares. Jon Schultz, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. Jon Schultz is a professor of educational psychology at UIT, the Arctic University of Norway, and helped develop the Better Learning Program with the Norwegian Refugee Council. He spoke to World in Progress from Oslo. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. Time for some music before we move on. You're listening to World in Progress with me, Kathleen Schuster. On this week's show, we're focusing on people who are searching for a safe place to call home. But what happens to those people who get stuck in transit? That's the case in the desert city of Agadez, a common destination for migrants heading through Niger to reach North Africa and then eventually Europe. Donio Sadaki has this report. It's presented by Evelyn McClafferty. Isafu, a man in his mid-twenties, has made it as far as Agadez. But now he's stuck. He's originally from the Ivory Coast. His parents are old, his family is poor, and leaving was his only option, he says. Now he needs to decide whether he'll try to reach Libya or Algeria. The problem is, I don't have the money. I'm still waiting to continue my journey. But I was robbed on the way here. They took all my things. He says he can't really earn enough money in Agadez to pay for his journey across the desert. At least, not yet. He currently works at a kind of snack bar in a wooden hut on the outskirts of the city, selling drinks and food. It's mainly migrants who come here. Many ask for advice on how to best continue their onward journeys. Isafu earns enough to buy food, but that's all he can afford so far – and there's an even bigger problem. 
As soon as you get to Agadez, you're blocked. You don't feel the urge to go on, because so much bad stuff happened on the way here. But going back to your home country would be failure, too. The transport ban also has an impact on us. In the ghettos, we are threatened by young people and the police. The young people are aggressive. They often steal from us and insult us. They say, you are not welcome here. Go back to where you came from. Isafu is referring to the 2015 law that prohibits transporting migrants. Those that do risk jail time. Many locals criticise the European Union for creating this tense situation and say people in the West African economic community actually enjoy the right to travel freely. Thousands of Agadez locals used to earn their living organising catering to migrants, like Amadou Amaru, Secretary-General of Express Tatour, an organisation that once arranged migrant transports. I had five to six cars in a convoy and each of the vans earned me between three to four or even up to five million FCF francs. That's almost 5,000 euro. Everyone who was involved in this was on a list, and we had a list and notebooks of who was getting paid. Today, Amaru works as a migrant advisor for the Agadez Regional Council. But many others, who once made a living as drivers or as hotel and restaurant staff, are unemployed. In Agadez, everything revolved around migrants, but despite the new transport ban, many migrants still use the city to organise their onward travel. Some 150 vehicles leave Agadez for Libya every week, says Amaru. Catering to migrants is still the most lucrative source of income in the city. What has changed, however, is that it has become more expensive and unsafe for migrants to travel onwards from here, because soldiers patrol the regular routes and armed gangs patrol the new ones. Drivers getting migrants from A to B risk prison sentences. Many have died in the desert, says Amaru. Our former president promised to create 900 jobs a year here, But instead, there are more than 1,000 unemployed people because of the travel ban. This has frustrated many. Not only did the law slow down the economy, but it has created other, even more dangerous consequences as well. Evelyn McClafferty with that report from Dunya Sadaki. Last month, the longtime Turkish leader Recep Tayyip Erdogan won a runoff election, extending his now 20-year rule for another term. The development has worried even those among Turkey's less political citizens, with some beginning to look for a way out of a country they say no longer feels like home. Reporter Karin Zenz has more. Her report is presented by Elliot Douglas. Erke and his wife Derya live with their young son in an upmarket apartment complex in Istanbul. There's a uniformed concierge sitting next to a large gated entrance who registers guests as they arrive. They have a large house with three floors and a garden, which is surrounded by a high wall. I don't feel safe out of these walls and I'm not going to live in walls. This is, not, this is my safe place, but I will not, I want to live... Uh, outside of these walls. There's a life there. My son should live that life outside there. It's a bit like living in a golden cage. 
The 49-year-old Berke earns good money as a photographer and producing short movies. Berke wears shorts and he has a large tattoo on his lower leg. His wife is 41 and works as a bank manager. What concerns them more is whether they can trust the state to protect them. Berke tries to explain. I don't even trust the police. Let's say I, have, I had an argument in the traffic that a guy like just cut my way and we stopped and we started to fight and the police came there. Especially he says, Selamun Aleyküm. When police came, he says, Selamun Aleyküm. We say, Merhaba. And the police guy separate us. Yes, the, the other guy Just for this, just for this. Yeah, if the other guy says, Aleyküm Selam, then they are a team right it's now. Finished. It's finished. It's finished. You don't, you can't do anything. Salam Aleyküm is a religious greeting. Peace be with you. And according to Derya, it is more commonly used by the Islamist conservative supporters of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Berke says he is a Muslim, but that's a private matter, which does not dominate his life. The same goes for his eight-year-old son. Derya, who has blonde, wavy hair, takes a drag on her e-cigarette and explains the decision they had to make about their son's schooling. Before the Erdogan, we have lots of good teachers, and we teach our children uh, modern things, physical, biology, a real history, Atatürk about Atatürk. After Erdogan, every school is changed. Uh, he give us Imam Hatip. The Imam Hatip schools are state secondary schools with a focus on religion. There are hundreds of thousands of them in Turkey. Instead of sending him there, the couple spends a great deal on a private school for their son, Derin, in the hopes that he'll learn about climate change and environmental protection instead of learning the Quran by heart. Darren is playing upstairs. But even aged eight, the election and the complicated politics of this country affects his life. He always writes and draws something. Derya rummages through a drawer for a letter Derin wrote to Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Emamolu of the secular CHP party before the runoff election. This is the party that Erdogan's challenger, Kilik Darolu, belongs to. She translates the text. Uh, dear Ekrem, I want to win you election. Uh, I don't want to bet ends. Please do it. Little Darren hoped that a victory for the CHP would mean that he and his family could remain in Turkey. But his parents already made the decision to turn their backs on Turkey a long time ago, Derya explains. A victory by Kilik Darulu would probably not have changed anything. They do not believe he would have been able to bring the country back into line with their values, at least not anytime soon. Nevertheless, on the evening of the runoff election, they followed the count with a feeling of hope. Yes, they were disappointed that the opposition failed again, Berke says. After Erdogan's balcony speech following his victory in the runoff election, little Derin sent his father a voice message. Erdogan spoke so badly, the little boy said. We always say, don't say like this, that's dangerous. Be respectful, especially uh, over the house, don't say like this. It breaks both of their hearts that politics already dominates their little boy's life. But he's probably learning from them, says Berke in his study. It's full of expensive photo and video equipment. Everything over there, all the equipment there. My everything's here, some upstairs. A large portrait of the state founder Atatürk hangs on the wall. He was the one who wrote the separation of state and religion into Turkey's constitution. Erdogan has now announced that he wants to change this constitution. Turkey has changed in the last 20 years and Turkish society is deeply divided, Derya says thoughtfully. 
and Berke talks about his mother in Ankara, a die-hard CHP member. Our home at Ankara is near to Antkabir, at Tandoan, actually, meeting area. And uh, every time there is a meeting of JP or anything, that our house is like all tasers are coming there. And she's very strict. She don't buy anything from that side. When she said she's a, she's a scarf seller, she don't buy anything. She's she's also this is also not good. But right now they're they're also treating like that. Daria grows angry when she thinks about Erdogan's Islamist conservative followers. Every election they feel more powerful because when Erdogan talk, he always say you and us. Others. He always uh, say, others. you are others, you are here, and we are here. For we example. are different. He yeah. always say like this. If a woman uh, walking like this, or your skirt uh, over like this, you are a bad woman. She briefly pulls her off-the-shoulder long dress up above her knees for illustration. And that's not good, Yani. This is my choice. Both Derya and Berke feel foreign in Turkey and have for some time. They no longer feel like this is their own country. Their idea is to move to Germany. I hope that Germany will want us, actually. The problem is, right now, after the election, there's a lot, lots of uh, demand uh, from Turkish people to go there. So uh, that growing demand will... Uh, the, the most thing I fear is lower our chances. And I don't know how make Germany love us. He laughs sheepishly. Berke has sent off many applications and can now do little more than hope. They don't have a plan B if the new start in Germany doesn't work out. Elliot Douglas with that report by Karen Zenz. And that's all we have for you on this week's show. To listen back to this and other reports from World in Progress, check out DW.com or download the show from Spotify or Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, if you have any feedback or questions, just shoot us an email at worldinprogress at dw.com. This week's show was produced by me, Kathleen Schuster. Our sound engineer was Michael Springer. Be sure to tune in again next week. World in Progress is produced by DW in Bonn, Germany. (laughs) 